Well, hi, everybody. It's time for another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about our political institutions, how they're failing us, and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And today we have a very special guest, Leah Stokes, who is a associate professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, is Welcome. also a podcaster, host of A Matter of Degrees, and the author of the book, uh, Short Circuiting Policy. Uh, with so many puns, uh, I'm sure you'll get right in on this podcast. In fact, we're, we're <laughs> stoked to have you. Uh, so welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for having me on. So I'm really delighted you could join us because I, I've been thinking a lot about the climate crisis and the failure of our politics, it seems to me, to, to really address them. And as a parent of two young girls, I am super frightened about what's ahead. It feels like things keep getting worse and faster. And I fear the disruptions, uh, refugee crises, both internal and external, and the kind of level of collective sacrifice that we might have to undertake. I really wonder whether democracy can survive that. So obviously, I'm not a climate science expert, although I might sometimes pretend to be uh, in conversations, but I, I do have a lot of friends who are a lot smarter than me on climate policy. And when, when I talk to them, I hear some signs of optimism on the technology side. It seems like we're making some real progress on the technology side. But a number of friends have said to me, yeah, we're, we're getting the technology right, but I don't know how we're ever going to get the politics of this right. So a big question that I hope we can tackle in this episode is this you know, question of whether our political institutions are up to the challenge that this climate crisis is posing for us. So just quick gut check on that. Yes, no, maybe. I'm going to go with maybe. I'm an optimist. Is maybe optimistic? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to question the whole premise and just ask what we're talking about here. But go ahead. Yeah, that, that, that'll, that'll keep you going. We're going to find out where the sources of optimism are. Otherwise, what, what are we going to do? So, all right, just as a, as a kind of starting out point, you know, we're a little over a year into the Biden administration, passed the stimulus, not the Build Back Better, passed the infrastructure. So how are we doing? How's the Biden administration doing? How is the U.S. doing? Is there progress? Is there enough progress? Like, what's, what's the kind of state of play on, on where we are and where we need to go? Well, unfortunately, uh, the majority of the president's agenda, not just on climate change, on social policy, many other issues, is in a bill called Build Back Better. It may not always be called that, but that's its working title, we could say. And it is stalled, like so many great bills right now in the Senate. That bill includes $555 billion of investments in the climate crisis, everything from helping people afford electric vehicles and cleaning up their homes to, you know, retooling manufacturing, heavy industry, taking on environmental justice. It's really quite a broad sweeping plan. Now, Senator Manchin, who is the likely last vote to get across the finish line, he has said that he is relatively supportive of the climate provisions, that they are farther along than other parts of the bill, such as the child care tax credit. But we can't seem to get momentum behind it. We can't seem to get it over the finish line. It's quite depressing. 
Meanwhile, the Biden administration is working hard to implement the infrastructure bill that has some important climate investments, particularly on things like public transit, but overall is really not a climate bill. And I think that the Biden administration has been holding back a little bit when it comes to executive action on climate change. Not because they don't care. There's some really important uh, legal issues at play, including the day we're recording this. There's oral arguments happening right now at the Supreme Court around the use of the Clean Air Act to regulate uh, pollutants from power plants. And so, you know, there are reasons why they're being a little slow. And and there are other reasons why we could question why they're being so slow and, and really push for more executive action on the climate crisis. First of all, thanks for for joining us. I think this is a fabulous topic. I'm a fan of, I haven't read your book entirely. I have read some of your articles and and I am a big fan. I I want to talk later about your idea of provoke petitioning. I think it's really insightful and how Congress works and how you change the status quo. But settling on the, the climate crisis right now, I want to kind of pick up where Lee left off and I want to, you know, ask a couple of questions, I mean, that probably relate more to our institutions more generally than climate policy per se. And I think the first one is like, what does it mean to get the politics right? As I see it, politics gets harder when you deal with issues that you view as existential, whether that be a Cold War, a nuclear war, whether that be the climate crisis. If you think that the outcome of a debate could be existential and bad for you, then you're not going to be inclined to really engage in politics to debate it. You're not going to be inclined to engage with your opponents and give them an opportunity to have a give and take. There's only one right outcome. And if we don't get that outcome, it's perilous and bad. And so I think that really challenges the entire kind of framework and construct of political deliberation in a democratic self-government. And then kind of more specifically to that, when we look at the Senate right now, and you brought up the Senate, and I agree the Senate's not acting. It seems to me that the last time the Senate on a sustained basis debated climate change and tried to advance climate policy was in the summer of 2008, when Harry Reid scheduled numerous cloture motions on a cap and trade bill. And he was saying, we're going to keep pushing this until we get on it, and we're going to keep pushing it until we get off it and do something here. And then the gas prices went through the roof and they dropped that. But my point is, Today, we have this view of, well, we don't have the vote, so let's not try. Or we can't do it via reconciliation because Manchin says no, so let's not even try. Let's not put a bill on the floor. Let's not allow for a debate and amendments. And if that's the case, is it that we're not doing politics around energy policy, that we're not getting energy policy? I mean, does that, I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but what does it mean to get the politics right? And why isn't Congress debating issues on the public's agenda? Because right now it looks like a bipartisan desire to keep these issues off the agenda until they know definitively that they can pass them with zero debate and zero amendments and zero disagreement. Yeah. Well, I think that Majority Leader Schumer has a strategy and it probably revolves around trying to keep um, Manchin in a productive mode to the degree that's possible. So You know, I'm not inside either of those men's heads, but my impression from conversations with staffers on the Hill is that the goal is to try to get the package to a place where it can be agreed upon and then move it forward as opposed to having specific debate. Real quick on that, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but isn't that what you get bills in a place where they can be agreed upon 
on the Senate floor, right? I mean, that's one place. I mean, there's other places too, but I mean, isn't that kind of like an inversion of like the whole process? I mean, it seems to me that that's where you do it. And you're, you have kind of the idea of provoke petitioning and all these other different ideas about kind of representation and the outside and the inside and the status quo. That's how you expand what's possible. That's how you move the needle. But if you try to do it behind closed doors on something that's really controversial, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible. And I think we're seeing that play out right now. Well, I don't actually think climate change is very controversial. Um, there's lots of research that shows that it's actually really popular to act. And I think that the Democrats have the will of the public behind them for sure. But there are interests at stake. There are people who stand to lose money by moving in a certain direction. And I've certainly seen that up close and personal with the negotiations around Build Back Better, as well as just documented that in my work from you know electric utilities, fossil fuel companies, etc., so I think that that is why they're trying to keep the scope of conflict, as we might say in Schatzschneider's words, smaller. Now, keep in mind that with reconciliation, there will still be an opportunity for amendments to be offered by the Republicans primarily, but anybody. And, you know, Manchin could basically veto any particular part of the bill. And he has done that in the past, right? So I don't feel that this plan that I am seeing to try to get more consensus and more agreement before it goes to the floor means that there will be no debate on Build Back Better. I think that there still will be. It's a question of what state does it need to be in in order to have the package meet overall success? And I think that that is where the challenge lies right now. I want to expand this a little bit to think about climate as an issue. In many ways, it, it feels like climate is really the issue of our times. In what ways is it a collection of a lot of different issues? And in what ways is it one really big issue? And in what ways is it the unique issue? And what ways is it like other interest group politics issues? Hmm. Those are really interesting questions, Lee. Well, the climate issue, as I see it, is largely about our energy system, right? The vast majority of pollution that we're talking about comes from the energy that we use to heat our homes, drive our cars, make things with heavy industry. That is where we are using fossil fuels and driving greenhouse gases, the pollution that creates the climate crisis. And so, of course, our energy system touches so much of our economy, our lives, the whole planet. You can see this right now, for example, in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, right? This is also about energy policy in many ways. And therefore, it's also about the climate crisis, even though it's really a security problem. So climate change is what you could think of as a cross-cutting issue. We use fossil fuels for so much in society, and therefore climate change touches so much of our politics. In terms of whether or not the problem is the same or different than other things, I think we see a lot of the same interest group dynamics that we might see in pharmaceuticals or healthcare, social policy that we see in climate change. We have an entrenched interest group the companies that either use fossil fuels or create through extraction fossil fuels, they have infrastructure, investments, they have money on the line. And as we move away from using those energy sources, they stand to lose money. 
And so those interest groups have an existential threat, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, um, in acting on the climate crisis. And most of them have made very little effort to try to figure out how they would turn away from fossil fuels. There's a paper by one of my colleagues, Pasha Madavi, and several other co-authors, which looked at fossil fuel companies, the oil majors, and looked at the way that they're actually talking about climate change versus the investments that they're making. And the fact is that they are doing very little to turn away from their business model and the status quo. So that kind of an entrenched, intransigent interest group that makes money in one way and has no interest in changing the way it makes money, I think we see that in other parts of our economy. It's just that the energy system is so core to everything we do, right? It's a, it's behind getting to work, going to the grocery store. It's behind, you know, making any kinds of goods and services in this country. Energy really does underpin so much. And in that way, it's quite a thorny challenge to take on. It's in our toothpaste, right? Should we be using the phrase energy politics rather than climate politics? Is that a better description? I don't know. I mean, I say that I study climate and energy, and I really came to studying energy because I was worried about the climate crisis, and I realized that it was fundamentally about our energy system. So I think that, you know, you can study two sides of the same coin in some ways. Now, there are parts of the energy system that are not necessarily all about climate, and there are parts of climate politics that are not necessarily all about energy. But if there was a Venn diagram, there'd be a massive amount of overlap between these two topics. I love a good Venn diagram. Love a Venn diagram. I don't know how to do it on a podcast, but you know, maybe we can figure that out. So I want to pick up on this because this is, I think, getting back to my, my my first question as well. And I mean, the first thing is that I've never met an interest group. I've never met an established organization, corporation, business, anything in between that is okay rolling the dice and not knowing how things turn out. When I worked on Capitol Hill, the people who really didn't like losing votes were leadership in K Street. Like they don't like losing votes. I think just as a matter of fact, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're an energy company or you're a, you know, you're a big bank. Part of that is because they represent the status quo and, you know, you're supposed to avoid a fight, not, not start one. I do think though, you know, there may be consensus or there may be a broad agreement about a problem. That's one stage in the policy process, right? When it comes to the different alternatives to how to solve that problem, I think it gets a slightly more complicated. I'm not saying it's insurmountable, but it is certainly not the same. I don't think we can infer from one step to the other that it's the same level of, of support. But I think this gets to your point about energy and climate and how we talk about it. Baumgartner talks, uh, Frank Baumgartner talks about how institutional like frames, I mean, not institutional frames, but issue frames are sticky. And if you change a frame, you change the way people think about it, you create a possibility to alter the status quo. I mean, you mentioned E.E. Uh, e. Schottschneider, you know, good old Elmer. The scope of conflict, you know, Schottschneider is very clear, very clear. He says, if you want to change the status quo, you got to start a fight. And the place to start a fight is not in a conference room where nobody can see, hear, or like touch what's going on. It's out where more people can be involved. Where I'm getting at here is that if you combine these ideas and you have this idea of institutional venues, I mean, people on an energy committee aren't going to want to disrupt the energy industry. People on the agriculture committee aren't going to want to disrupt the farm bill. I mean, that's the nature of these committees. That's the nature of the staff who are helping leadership craft these bills. That's the nature. They're just inherently cautious, which is not a bad thing. I'm not disagreeing with that. But if you wait and you look at Congress like a factory, 
that may or may not be using green energy. And you're basically designing a blueprint behind closed doors. And once it gets ready, then you're going to put it on the floor and it's going to go. That may be good for some things, but I don't think it's going to work to really adjudicate a lot of really controversial issues. But if you put, if you change the venue, if you get out of committees, if you get out of the, the leaders' um, conference rooms and you go straight to the floor and you start pushing, and you start pushing and you start having votes, and maybe you lose some votes, maybe it takes a couple of years, all of a sudden what happens is you can change that frame and you can start talking about it in terms of climate or energy or anything in between. And when that happens, you then bring more people into the fight. You disrupt the current coalitions and you create a new coalition that favors changing the status quo. And this is exactly what we saw on civil rights in the mid 20th century. And this is not what we're seeing on energy policy right now. So, or climate policy or whatever we're calling it. So I guess my, my question is, is the problem, the issue itself, and the fact that the people either don't agree or aren't allowed to agree because of interest or whatever, or is it the fact that we the way we think about Congress and the party structures in Congress, because Democrats aren't pushing climate just as much as Republicans aren't opposing it. Nobody's doing anything on the floor. They're not doing things in places where you can ultimately disrupt the status quo over time. That's what I'm kind of trying to figure out is in it's not successful. I mean, they're going to keep doing this for a very long time until it becomes a foregone conclusion. And then maybe they'll act at that point, but it's irrelevant. Well, I, that may be a fair critique of the last two months, let's say January and February of this year, but it's not really a fair critique of the last year. I think that um, climate policy was being debated, particularly in the House you know, various parts of it went through committee. Uh, it, it's been discussed very much in both chambers for over the past year at the committee level, you know, as the budget reconciliation package was being put together. I think there was a lot of active discussion and there was a lot of organizing on the outside of Congress as well. You saw everything from protests to the hunger strike by the Sunrise Movement. Organizations that I work with, like Evergreen Action and Rewiring America, were working very much to set a narrative amongst elites in the media about the urgency of the climate crisis, shaping things like extreme weather events in the Pacific Northwest, that terrible heat wave that killed people. You know, those were things that were that was really going well, I would say, in 2021. Unfortunately, that momentum did not lead to the bill getting over the finish line by the end of the year. And we can ask questions as to why that is. But not even any finish, like it's not, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. Like, why didn't that momentum lead to any floor action at all? I mean, White House, Senator White House gives a speech every day. And it's like he talks about how this is, a, this is going to destroy the planet. Yet there's never an effort to offer an amendment under Republican or Democratic control to demand action on this. There's no effort to use their procedures and their policies to do things. In the House, yeah, they can act because it's a lot easier for the parties to maintain control over the agenda, basically get rid of any divisions inside the parties and protect against any divisive votes that they may not like. And so that's why the House can pass immigration reform, for instance, but the Senate can't. In the Senate, it's a different story. But what I'm very intrigued by is why senators who think that the climate crisis is destroying the earth are unwilling to use their resources and their strategies and all the things they have to over time alter that kind of scope of conflict and change that frame so that they can ultimately get action. Like that, I mean, the civil rights movement, you saw senators say, to hell with the norms of this place, we're going to start to act. And it took 
10 plus years of, of skunks at the garden party before the Senate finally got to that point, but they were a big critical part of it. And I'm, I'm wondering why is that not happening inside the Senate? It's like, well, we just need to keep this party in control and eventually it's going to happen. But that party's showing us that they're not doing anything either. I don't think that's fair uh, to what senators have been doing over the past several years. I mean, Senator Markey has uh, a committee that he has been holding hearings on. Senator Heinrich, through his committee, the JC, held hearings that I was a participant in. There is work happening. There's a lot, as you know, that happens before a bill hits the floor. And I'm not in Leader Schumer's office, and so I don't know what his thinking is at this moment in time. I do feel that in the last two months, there's been poor decisions that have really undermined the momentum of the climate movement in the Senate and outside. So there's lots of blame that can go around there. But I don't think that that reflects uh, the past year, including in the Senate. Well, and also, I mean, the JC doesn't have legislative jurisdiction, Joint Economic Committee, so they're not going to be able to report a bill. And But Harry Reid, was, the Senate was acting on this issue over 15 years ago, repeatedly. There were votes on this issue repeatedly, and then they just disappeared. Had a lot more, had a much, much uh, broader majority. But let, let's, let's move on. I want to think a little bit more about the U.S. political institutions and do that in a comparative way. There are a lot of other advanced industrial democracies that it seems to me are uh, doing a lot more to move to a more sustainable energy system, reducing their carbon. So what is it that makes the U.S. such a laggard? If I assume you can push back. You don't think the U.S. is, is a laggard. But is it the, the lobbying and interest group system? Is it the private financing of our elections? Is it the party system itself? Is it the Senate? Is it all of the above and how they interact? What, what do you see as the institutional reasons why the or is it differences in the energy sector? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm going to have to disagree with the premise, uh, which is that I don't think that the United States is is acting less than uh, or is that much worse than other countries. And I would point to two references for that. First is a study of comparative climate politics by one of my colleagues, Matt O'Mildenberger. It's called Carbon Captured, and he looks at climate policymaking in the United States, Australia, Norway, and other advanced democracies like Canada, Japan, and otherwise. And he basically finds that in Europe, where you often have what we would call corporatist systems, right, these political institutions of more consensus, we could say, where both labor and industry are brought into the decision-making process, that those vested interest groups, whether that's unions with ties to uh, extractive industries or the extractive industries themselves, that they will allow climate policy to move forward, but the teeth the ambition of that climate policy is watered down through that corporatist decision-making process. So yes, you can see action in something like the European Union emissions trading um, system, but how ambitious that is, does it actually cut pollution at the pace and scale that's necessary? No, it does not. And the second reference is, of course, Greta Thunberg, who is from a country that you might think is leading, right, Sweden, but she always points out that they are not actually leading, that countries like Norway, uh, for example, which has had a price on carbon for a long time, one of the first countries to act 
They still have massive oil and gas extraction, and they have a sovereign wealth fund that is fundamentally premised on fossil fuels. So I think that the United States is certainly not a leader on this issue, but nor do I necessarily think it's a big laggard. The United States is, of course, a more of a pluralist system. Yes, this is what Maddow argues in his book. It's a pluralist system, but that means that when Democrats, in the case of the United States, the, the party that actually wants to take on the climate crisis, when they do gain power, they can impose actual costs on these industries to a greater extent than in a corporatist um, system. And so there have been real efforts to do that. And you can see decarbonization happening in the power sector, the area that I focus the most on quite dramatically in the United States. Even more so than, for example, in Germany, which passed um, various policies in the 90s and 2000s to deploy huge amounts of renewables, but has a phase out date the last time I checked for coal of 2038, I believe. So, you know, decades in the future and decades beyond what is possibly sustainable for the planet. So, Countries around the world are not acting. There are various reasons why they're not. And I would really point folks to that book, Carbon Captured, um, because it's not just, of course, interest groups in the sense of corporations, fossil fuel companies. It's also, unfortunately, also labor unions. And you see that in the United States, too, with labor unions like the United Mine Workers Association. Or even in California, where parts of the refining industry has been recently unionized, and that's been slowing down legislation in Sacramento. Now, one good thing I will say is that the United Mine Workers has come out in support of Build Back Better, in part because of various health protections uh, for coal workers in that bill. So, you know, we are starting to see some movement. I think that many people see the writing on the wall when it comes to coal jobs in the United States, and they're trying to figure out a pathway towards sort of new employment in coal regions. But I think the story is far more complicated than, oh, the rest of the world is acting on climate change and, and the United States is some kind of laggard. Well, that's very clarifying to dispel a myth that I had. So thank you. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very helpful. And I'm trying to think through again, I mean, why aren't we seeing more action? And I know there, there is action in terms of hearings and all these other things, but let me just kind of walk through what I, what I would do if I were in the Senate, for instance, and I were, you know, advising a, a Senator and how I would use a lot of the ideas that you've that you've written about as well. I mean, one, you introduce a bill, and we've seen that. You have lots of the bills, right? You introduce a bill that you want to act on. Then you have a, a process of, and you can explain to the listeners, of kind of provoke petitioning, basically. You basically get out there and get people fired up about the bill. This is how we got the, um, in 2011, went right up to the debt ceiling with cut cap balance. This is the government shutdown in 2013. This is the this kind of strategy works where you basically, you introduce a bill, you then get interested stakeholders because everybody could be a stakeholder. It could be a grassroots organization. It doesn't have to be a big coal company, but you get interested stakeholders and you start to change the temperature on the outside. Maybe you have a letter sign on campaign. Maybe you have a website where you have a citizen petition, but basically you do things that raise the pressure on your colleagues. Then with that pressure, you then generate, that pressure's generating over time and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you use it not to necessarily pass the bill because you know your bill may be really big to get more interest, but you use it to then offer amendments that are riders to appropriations bills. You do a directed rulemaking. You look for ways to divide the opposition 
And then also to put pressure on your own party who's kind of that are lukewarm and pushing this, because it's not just Manchin, right? You look for ways to put pressure on like-minded senators who say one thing publicly, but behind closed doors aren't as aggressive privately. And you do this over time, and it may take a year, it may take two, it may take 10. But ultimately, it will, if the public's there and you can do your job right, it will move the needle. What you don't do is sit around and wait for the leadership to to negotiate individually with senators and then come out with a bill because then the bill they come out with is by definition not going to be the thing that ultimately is going to move the frame, if you will. Like, because it's uh, the way to you're negotiating behind closed doors and you give everybody a lot more leverage behind closed doors. You need to really focus on how do you use your leverage and tools and play an outside inside game to change the status quo. Because you have to do that if you want to move the needle on this issue. We saw this with AOC and the Green New Deal at the very beginning, and then she kind of stopped. But she was remarkable in what she was able to do in a short period of time. That is what has been happening. What you're describing is what's been happening. Uh, maybe you feel that it's not effective enough. There's not enough of it. Maybe the media doesn't cover it enough. But that is what is happening. You have, for example, on the inside. No, and also on the outside. Yes, this is this is what is happening. But it's the it's that link between the two. It's the outside inside. So you basically need to generate pressure, and then you do you take action to put senators on the record. You lose a vote, and then you then you find out where you are, and then you use that vote to generate more outrage. Then you generate more pressure. And then you lose another vote. But this time, maybe you're not quite as far behind as you once were. And you slowly build it up. But there are no votes. There's no, there are no votes. And that's the problem. As long as there's no votes, we're not going to see. Well, there have been votes at the committee level in the case of, for example, Senator Wyden, right? Like these things are happening in the way you're describing. The tax bill, the finance uh, committee has done a lot of work, which has now become basically the bulk of the Build Back Better investments on climate. They're going through the finance committee. And, you know, he did put forward a bill that was it did have hearings. It did have votes uh, at the committee level. So there have been those efforts. You could also point out Senator Heinrich's work on a bill called Ziha, which is trying to build momentum for home electrification. Of course, you could point to Senator Smith's work on the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which I was very involved in and was very much an inside-outside campaign involving hundreds of groups pushing for that policy. I think, to go back to a point that Lee made earlier, the margins are really narrow. If one senator says no, right, that's the end of it. And so we really do have a very strong veto player at this moment in time. A lot of us, I think, naively earlier in the campaign felt that the campaign for these policies felt that that senator could be brought along or that we could use the kinds of strategies that you're talking about to overcome the reality of opposition from entrenched interest groups and having influence over that senator. Um, And it did not play like that. And I think also with the very compressed timeline that we have between elections in this country, right, we're, we're kind of already gearing back up. We've just finished an election and we're about to head back into another one. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressure to try to actually get something across the finish line and voted on. And I, my understanding is that leadership, you know, wants to really pass something, not just have signaling votes at the end of the day, um, because there's a really compressed timeline and concern about uh, what kind of uh, House and Senate could be brought back in, in 2023. So that's really what's been happening. And I think that uh, we can see in media coverage, in public concern, that climate change really is rising uh, to the top of the agenda. And I've certainly seen it in my own career when I started working on this. 
nobody asked me to go on podcasts, and I certainly wasn't talking to senators. And over the course of the last several years, that's certainly shifted. So we do have momentum up until I'd say the last two months. Basically, in December, when Senator Manchin went on uh, Fox News and said that the bill was dead, I think that that uh, has really uh, created a lot of uncertainty and a lot of challenges for sort of reviving the negotiations. And Lee, just real quick, and that's a great point, but I think that is more of a sign that the process that they were using to pass this bill doesn't work. And tight margins work both ways. I mean, if, if one vote kills it, one vote passes it. And yes, they're not, I don't think they're signaling votes per se. You have a vote and then yes, maybe it goes down and Susan Collins votes no, right? Or a retiring Republican votes no. And then all of a sudden their friends are calling them and you have pressure in that, at their, their district and state offices and you have all kinds of different people reaching out to them. And then you keep that pressure up and then you make them vote again. And maybe they vote yes, but somebody else votes no. But you need votes. Not They're not just signaling or messaging. They're ways to reveal information about the determination of people to see policy enacted. I mean, we're not building Buicks. It's not a factory. We're not waiting until everything's all lined up and ready to go. It's the actual fight and debate that makes the outcome possible, right? The legislative struggle makes compromise possible. That's exactly what we saw in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. I mean, the parties are very divided. The part, the country is, seems like they're very upset about a lot of things that the government's not acting on. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. The only, it's not quite as bad as the 60s, I think, but. Well, I want to wrap up here and I, and I want to go back to the original question of, of whether our institutions are capable of, of handling the stakes of the crisis. And you gave us a, a maybe with a kind of tilt towards the optimism. Now, I think that the optimistic case is, you know, as you said, that that public opinion is, I think, really shifting in favor of uh, taking some pretty drastic steps. Democrats have made it much more of a priority. And the you know, pessimism is that despite this, you know, it's almost impossible to get a, a single Republican vote uh, in favor of this legislation, and that our institutions are are really stuck in a, in a space in which, you know, the conservative Democratic Center from West Virginia basically holds the veto power on this entire effort. So what makes you optimistic? What makes you pessimistic? And if you could pull any lever or set of levers in American political institutions, what would make you more optimistic about our ability to really solve this problem in a, a comprehensive, forward-thinking way? I think that we have to ask ourselves, why can't we find a Republican vote to maintain the stable climate that is necessary for human society, <laughs> right? Like, this is an existential threat. And it's interesting when you look at the polling data, young Republicans are quite worried about climate change because it doesn't matter what their ideology is, they still have to live on the planet that is being wasted right now. So clearly... There should be votes for maintaining a habitable planet. So why? Why is that? Why don't we have any Republican support? And what I think is the case is that the Republican Party is very captured by um, campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. There's lots of research on this. Of course, the Koch brothers would be kind of top of the list. Um, they, remember, Koch Industries is a fossil fuel company. Many people don't remember that. Petrochemical company. And so, you know, if we were able to 
break the strong relationship between interest groups financially and the Republican Party, particularly fossil fuel interest groups, I think that a lot more uh, Republicans might be willing to act on the crisis. It's not some ideological reason why they don't want to take on this problem. It's really, in my view, about interest group capture of an entire party. So that would probably be the thing that would unlock this problem a lot more. And I think that, you know, once if we were to have more support for action, we could be asking ourselves, what does a transition actually look like that protects workers? How do we make sure that, you know, these industries are actually going to transition? Take, for example, right now, the war in Ukraine. There's a whole question about how is Europe going to get through this winter, let alone next winter, uh, without Russian gas, right? The entire continent is very beholden to Putin because of gas supplies. Well, what if we were to electrify Europe in the coming year, right? What if we were to have the United States use the Defense Production Act to build massive amounts of heat pumps, And in fact, we could be using that to build heat pumps that run on water, on boilers, because that is evidently the technology used in Europe. And that could involve retooling of an industry that is currently using fossil fuels, right? Fossil fuel-based furnaces and boilers. That could be an opportunity for an industry to thrive in the United States and find a pathway into the 21st century economy without having to use fossil fuels. You know, that is the kind of transition and the kind of wartime action that involves consensus, right? That, look, we have this huge existential threat in the case of Putin being aggressive, and we've got to work to support Europe and the United States in making sure that we're not dependent on Russian gas, let's say, globally. You know, that is, if if we were to have people who are actually interested in answering these questions and solving problems. That's the kind of solution and the kind of wartime mobilization that would not just be good for Europe or the Ukraine. It would be great for the United States. It would be great for the workers in those industries that are currently stuck in a relatively dead-end job because we know we have to get off fossil fuels. So that's what I find the most frustrating. It's like, Climate change is going to be hard enough to solve if we were all rowing in the same direction, right? We're talking about, you know, retooling huge amounts of industries, workers, and we want to make sure that everybody's brought along, that there are good paying jobs and that people have a pathway to the future. But rather than having people rowing in one direction, we not only have to solve the hardest problem, which is not using fossil fuels to run our economy while having people actively undermine that effort and work against us. I just ask one other question about the Republicans. My sense is that in the Trump administration, there was just this reflexive rolling back of Obama era rules, even beyond what what industry might have wanted. That some of it was just felt to me like mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. just trying to be reflexively anti-Obama, trolling the libs. But maybe that's that was that, that's just my misunderstanding of what happened. No, I think that's very true. I think when people look back on the Trump administration, it's not just that they were trying to undo things. They were also rather incompetent. And sometimes they were doing things that the industry didn't even want. In some ways, for example, the electric power sector, which is what I study the closest, I think that they are 
interested in transitioning, not at the pace and scale that's necessary, unfortunately, but we had more support, for example, for the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which was a plan to get to 80% clean power by 2030. We had more support from the electric power sector than I think many people understood or expected. And that's because the industry really wants stability, right? They want a plan. Where are we going? What do we need to do to get there? Are you going to provide us resources to help us get there? What's the game plan here? And Trump wasn't interested in creating stability or certainty. He was an agent of chaos, really, and incompetence. And so many of the decisions that were made were not made with a lot of skill. You see this, for example, in the Clean Air Act rule, um, right? There was the Clean Power Plan. It was then replaced by, I believe it was called the ACE rule. The courts then threw that out because it was so poorly done. You know, he didn't create any sense of stability for the industry. And so I think that that's really where people are trying to go now. They're trying to say, hey, we'd actually like to figure out where we're headed. And that's where the Supreme Court oral arguments that I mentioned earlier that are happening today is so important because parts of the electric power sector are saying, this is not helpful. You know, the court is going to hear these arguments. They're going to make a ruling. And then what? You know, what is the plan for the industry going forward? I think that more and more people see the writing on the wall when it comes to climate change, and they actually just want to figure out what we're going to do and get along with the program. Lee, I just got to jump. I mean, the idea of, you know, getting along with the program and, I mean, it's not about consensus. In Congress, you negotiate the non-negotiable. That's what you do. And you have people who come together who disagree. And then they have there's a process that plays out. And that process, nine times out of 10, is going to yield an outcome. The problem is you can't control the outcome. You don't know what's going to happen. And you, you know, you, you just they act, you act, and so on and so on. But I think what I what I'm struggling with, and you know, and this is really the last question I have here, is that you can't get a Republican vote if you don't ask for it. And we say, well, we're asking for them. Well, we're asking for them maybe in committee. But there are only so many Republicans in committee. And if you can't win in a committee, then you should skip the committee and go somewhere else. And, you know, if the Republicans aren't the only reason we don't have votes in the Senate, why? Because every single senator has the same amount of power to force votes on issues, the same amount of power that Schumer does, the same amount of power that McConnell does. And there's nothing, there's no action on the Senate floor on this issue. And what I find so remarkable is that in 2008, there was a ton of action. There were votes left and right. There were people pushing, Democrats pushing, Republicans opposing. That was happening. And yes, they didn't win, but they were still trying. And today it's like, well, we have to wait until we get everybody to sign on the dotted line and everybody's on board with the program. And then we'll just rubber stamp it on the floor because you know that's just what we do. The time for debate's over. And I, I tend to think that on really tough issues, it becomes a lot easier to solve them if you put a bill on the floor, if the industry is where they say they are, as you say they are, if the people are where they say you say they are, then let's have lots of amendments and lots of votes. And yes, you may lose some, you may win some, but ultimately a bill is going to pass. I think what's remarkable is that this it's this kind of like top down policy centric, like this is the outcome we have to have in any process that doesn't lead to that outcome is not good. But that's what politics is all about. I think you're mischaracterizing what, what Lee has been saying. But why aren't we having, like, why do Democrats not do what they were doing, say, in 2008, in 2007, in 2006? Well, I think 
you know, I have certainly been in the group that I wanted there to be a vote on something like the Clean Electricity Performance Program. I wanted Manchin to have to vote up or down on it, but I'm not Schumer. I don't get to make that choice, right? And But neither does Schumer, any senator. I mean, we have presumably senators who, who are very fervent believers in this. Why aren't they saying, you know, Schumer, I disagree with you. I'm going to force a vote on this anyway. They can do that. They have the power to do that. I'd spent 15 plus years doing that in the Senate. Well, I mean, you've just made the argument that it didn't solve the problem in 2008 either, right? And so I don't know if if that would solve the problem. I don't know if that's the missing link. It seems that you think it is. I have certainly wanted there to be votes on some things, but that hasn't been what has happened. I've met with senators and talked about these issues in the past months. And, you know, people have talked about hearings, other ways to think about how to get momentum back. Um, You know, we've now got a war in Ukraine. There's a lot going on. And so I think people are at a bit of a loss in terms of how to get momentum. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think we all like to see more action on these issues. And I think we've really highlighted some of the reasons why it's so difficult to build the coalition that that we need to build. But this conversation has given me a real sense of optimism that we are at least moving in the right direction. And whether we get there fast enough, who knows? But uh, I hope we can get there in a solar-powered way. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. A new podcast just joined the Democracy Group. You should check it out. They call it the podcast your mother warned you about. Village Squarecast takes on the topics you're not supposed to discuss in polite company. Things like politics, religion, and race. And they do it in conversations between people who don't look or think alike. With respect, friendship, even laughter. Over 15 years, the Village Square has hosted hundreds of gatherings with tens of thousands of people in bars, in churches, and even in the middle of a downtown street. And now they bring you their favorite conversations from inspiring leaders to cool people exhausted by the political rancor and looking for a better way. Check it out on Village Squarecast wherever you get your podcasts.